Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. Thank you for joining me once again. I know I always say this, but it really is a harrowing case this week. We don't often advise listener discretion at the start of an episode. After all, this is a true crime podcast, but I really do think it's necessary today because we're going to be covering the torture and murder of an eight-year-old child. This is an upsetting case and whilst we will attempt to tone down any descriptions of child abuse, it will be necessary to go into some detail in order to convey the gravity of the crimes committed against a child at the centre of today's case. And there will also be references to child sexual abuse as if this couldn't get any worse. Now, you may have picked up on my use of the word we there, which was very deliberate on my part because I'm not on my own today. I'm joined by my very own sister who just happens to be a child protection expert, uh, which is the title I've given her, but it's, it's probably not quite right. But you know a lot more about this subject than me. Uh, So her name's Laura and she's done pretty much all of the research for today's case and written the scripts, haven't you? Well, yes. Uh, I I wouldn't say necessarily I would describe myself as an expert, but soon as I don't get many sort of compliments from you, I will take it. Um, So yeah, I did a bit of research around this uh, because basically when I very first started my career in sort of the field of child protection so I spent 20 odd years around and about on the front line of um, child abuse cases and various sorts of poverty stricken situations and all sorts of things of this sort of nature when I started it was very much all of our training was very much based around the the story that we're going to cover today really and I recently did some frontline child protection training I was invited in to do some training and I based it around this case we talked into this case that we're going to talk about today and not one person in the room knew her name the little girl that we're going to talk about today and I found that just really shocking so just wanted to kind of um, really sort of talk into this case particularly and and just remember really um the tragedy but also what came out as a result of of what we learned from that tragedy so that's kind of what led me into prompting you to touch on this case in one of your podcasts so I'm glad that you've done it yeah because I mean you came up with this one because I, I've thought about covering this case and we, we will let you know who we're talking about in a moment but I've thought about this loads of times before um, but it's one of those cases that I didn't really know loads about but I knew all of the bad stuff and it, it's so upsetting I just I just couldn't really bring myself to do it so I'm really grateful that you've done all of the work and it's hard enough just kind of reading through the scripts and presenting it now and um, there are some harrowing details in it but yeah I think you're right I think this happened over 20 years ago now and um, it's well I think it was around about 20 years ago and I think it's important that we don't forget this person's name and that we have an opportunity to talk about her legacy um, so hopefully we'll we'll do that today. So this is the story of an impoverished girl who was plucked from the volatile plains of the Ivory Coast with the promise of a new life in Europe. A life filled with luxury and opportunity. What follows, however, is a living nightmare. Just 15 months after being rescued from her homeland, the girl would lie dead in her bed in the intensive care unit of St Mary's Hospital in London, the victim of one of the worst cases of child abuse in this country's history. This is, of course, the story of Victoria Climbier, a precious, happy and intelligent girl who was catastrophically failed by the health and social services whose very job it was to protect her. 
Their incompetent systems and the countless missed opportunities to save her ultimately signed Victoria's death warrant. So before we get into it, before we get into the nitty gritty, let's just take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. So the following people have signed up to support us in the past two weeks. Those people are Paul Cassidy, Ellie McQuiston, Hayley Hatfield, Liam Spencer, Rosalind Smallwood, Laura Straker, Suzanne, Claire Peters, Deborah Elwell and Torno Alasarino. Uh, Alasernio, thank you so much to all of you. Um, if you would like to join these guys, then you can just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. So the Klimbiers were a happy family, albeit a busy one. Victoria was the fifth out of a total of seven children born to parents Francis and Berthe in Abidjan, the economic capital of the Ivory Coast, a country located on the south coast of West Africa. Victoria's family described her as a prankster, a lively girl with a great sense of fun. But they were all too aware that the opportunities afforded to her in the Ivory Coast would be limited and would prevent her from achieving her full potential. With an average lifespan of just 45, the country was unstable at this time, with political uprisings and military coups a common occurrence. Consequently, when an opportunity presented itself for one of their children to be educated in Europe, the Klimbiers were thrilled. And that was just a bit I'd, I'd added in around the Ivory Coast, uh, which you'd neglected to put Fuck in you. the context. I got it in early. I got it in early. Yeah, you can get it in in numerous times. Um, I've got it's like water off a duck's back to me. I hear it all the time. So um, I just thought it was important to talk a little bit about the Ivory Coast and to kind of set the scene as to why the Klimbiers would be willing to have a child move abroad uh, for the purposes of of their education. Because yeah, the average lifespan in I think this was taken from 2004 so a few years after the time that we're referencing here but the average lifespan I think for a man was 42 and for a woman was 47 so you know it's shocking really and very different to to the western world. In October 1998 the uncle of Victoria's father Francis died. His funeral was attended by relatives from across the world including his sister Marie-Therese Kual, Francis's aunt and Victoria's great-aunt. Marie-Therese had been living in France for some time and although not close to her nephew and his wife and children, she had met the family before and on this occasion she appeared to be quite taken with them. After the funeral, Marie-Therese visited the Climbier household and offered to take one of the children back to France with her where she said she would be able to provide them with a first-rate private education. Marie-Therese painted herself as a wealthy woman, desperate to share her life of privilege, and the Klimbiers felt they could entrust one of their children to her in the hope of a better life. Now, this might sound strange to many of us. The Klimbiers didn't really know Marie-Therese. She was a relative, but they'd not met her many times at all. And yet here they are, considering sending one of their children to go and live with her in a foreign country. Keeping in touch back then would have been a real challenge with limited internet access and of course a lack of finance on the Klimbier's part. So to send a child to live with a relative in France from the Ivory Coast would have been akin to having said child adopted. But these kinds of informal fostering arrangements weren't unusual in the Ivory Coast. Victoria's father, Francis, would later say of Marie-Therese, I trusted her. The way she looked and spoke proved in my mind that she was genuine when she made the offer or the children put their hands up. We were all very excited. 
This was a huge proposal for us and everyone was smiling. Each of the children were putting their hands up and saying me. Victoria was ultimately chosen to go and live with Marie-Therese and her parents said goodbye to her just two days later. In fact, the entire extended family and all the neighbours turned out to see her off, none of them having the slightest inclination that Marie-Therese's intentions were anything but altruistic. Indeed, none of them could have foreseen the true horror that awaited Victoria upon her arrival in France and then later in the UK, and of course they could never have imagined this would be the very last time they would get to see Victoria alive. It was a naively jubilant day and possibly the last time Victoria ever felt happy and hopeful. And it's it's kind of um it's sort of a, a nice part to, to have a break in a moment. We'll we'll hear from our first sponsor in a second. But it just goes downhill from here, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is about the, the most as you've said there, the most hopeful happy part of the story uh, and, and like you say it just declines from there really and it's so hard to think think about that scene you know you painted that scene of uh, almost you know the whole village or town or whatever it would have been coming out and and just being filled with hope that she was going off to a happy life and a better life and better prospects and opportunities and it just so did not turn out like that it's just it's just horrendous. So it's a good point to take your break. You're absolutely right. Okay, so we'll hear from the first of today's show sponsors. So interestingly, in a weird twist of fate, Victoria was in fact a late substitute for another young girl, Anna, whom Marie-Therese had originally intended to take back to France with her. Anna's parents had had second thoughts at the last minute, however, and so the offer was made to the Climbier family to pick a child instead. It seems Marie-Therese was intent on bringing a child back home with her following this visit to the Ivory Coast. Having been convinced that that child would be Anna, she had already applied for a passport in her name. When those plans fell apart with Anna, Marie-Therese just replaced one child with another, Victoria for Anna. And in the first of the appalling failings that led to Victoria being a hidden victim for so long, she was able to travel on Anna's passport with no questions being asked at any border control. And the two girls didn't even look alike. They looked really different. And it's at this point that Victoria lost the first of many of her basic human rights, her identity. She became known as Anna. She was called Anna and presented to every authority from this point onwards as Anna. In fact, her real name wasn't known in the UK until after her death. After a short stay with other family members in a different part of the Ivory Coast, Victoria and Marie-Therese eventually travelled to France and subsequently spent five months in Paris. Although Marie-Therese had given the impression that she was a wealthy bitch, a pillar of the community, the truth was in fact very different. She had no money and she and Victoria lived in a council flat in Paris, surviving on benefits. Marie-Therese quickly registered Victoria in a local school, not a private one obviously, and passed her off as her own daughter, Anna. It didn't take long for the French authorities to start to become suspicious however. Victoria was regularly absent from school and when she was there, she often fell asleep in class. Teachers also began to notice strange marks on her body. The school were concerned enough to issue a child at risk emergency notice and it appeared that the net was closing in on Marie-Therese at this point. 
At around the same time, the benefits agency had also begun to investigate her on suspicion of making fraudulent claims. Now, after returning to school following a prolonged period of absence, teachers noticed Victoria was wearing a wig, and when they investigated further, they realised that her head had been shaved. The head interrogated Marie-Therese about her daughter's lack of hair, and with now questions flying around from social services, the school and the benefits agency, Marie-Therese decided it was time to leave. Very sadly for Victoria, and shamefully for the UK, Marie-Therese was able to bring Victoria over to London in April 1999, where she hid her in plain sight. The questions that Marie-Therese had been asked in Paris were not asked in London, and she was able to intensify her campaign of systematic abuse against Victoria without anyone raising an alarm loud enough to save her from the horrific abuse and neglect that she would continue to endure. Pretty much about a day after arriving in London, Marie-Therese took Victoria to visit a distant relative, Esther Acker. It was an unannounced visit and Esther was quite surprised to see Marie-Therese on her doorstep with this strange-looking girl whom she introduced as her daughter, Anna. Esther noticed that this girl didn't look quite right. She was frail and bizarrely she appeared to be wearing a wig. Marie-Therese explained that they had recently entered the country and were staying at a hostel while awaiting more permanent housing. After they left, Esther struggled to shake the feeling that something wasn't quite right and when she bumped into Marie-Therese and Victoria again in the street a few weeks later, she noticed how neat and tidy Marie-Therese looked but how strange and dishevelled Victoria looked. The little girl known to her as Anna was wearing a long-sleeved dress despite it being June and Esther noticed a fresh scar on her right cheek which she was troubled by. She asked Marie-Therese outright how the child had hurt herself and Marie-Therese gave some half-baked story about Victoria falling over on an escalator. So already, even at this point, Esther, this distant relative, is kind of onto Marie-Therese, I think, isn't she? Yeah, I think what she actually did, I think in addition to bumping into them in the street, I think she also went back with them to the hostel um, that they were staying in and just really did not like the hostel scene. I've been into many hostels over the years and I think going back 20 years as well, there was no sort of filter around who was in these hostels. So they were kind of like halfway houses. So I think when Esther went and viewed that place for herself, there were kind of, I don't know how to say it, sort of politically correct, but... um there were men hanging around that didn't seem the most savoury types of men and she just did not think it was a, an appropriate place for a child to be or, or even a, a sort of single woman as well. So I think that intensified. Not only had she got these sort of this strange appearance of this girl and she just didn't look right and she looked kind of underweight and dishevelled and she got this kind of mark on her cheek and different things. When she actually saw the hostel as well, that just just tipped her over the edge I think and she just wanted to offer some assistance and help so um, I think you go on to tell us what Esther actually did then. Yeah so it does sound like it was just these people have landed in in the UK and I want to help them and then obviously she goes on to have a number of concerns. Um, Before we get to that though there are many examples of incompetency, poor practice, a lack of care, miscommunication and downright failings that led to Victoria's plight going unnoticed 
and her not being appropriately safeguarded by authorities. But there are also many examples of people acting on their instincts, people attempting to raise the alarm to find someone who would listen to them and investigate their concerns. And of course, Esther Acker is a great example of one such person. She didn't let family ties get in her way when she informed the authorities of her concerns. It's just a shame that they did fuck all about it. The day after bumping into Marie-Therese and Victoria in the street, Esther made the first of two anonymous calls to Brent Social Services. She told the call handler at the call centre that screened incoming calls and referrals and Ms Samantha Hunt that she was worried about Marie-Therese and the girl she knew as Anna. She explained their temporary housing was not suitable for a child to live in and she said she was worried that Victoria looked sickly and underweight. So yeah, that makes total sense that she'd clearly been to the hostel at this point and seen it. Esther was assured someone would look into the case and Samantha Hunt took down the child's address and ran a background check on the system which drew a blank. However, Samantha Hunt deemed the information relayed to her on the call serious enough to complete a referral form to Brent's child protection team, which she then faxed over that same day. Esther followed this initial call-up with another one a few days later to find out what actions were being taken. She was told by another call handler that someone was probably looking into it, but that wasn't the case. Nobody had picked up that referral form faxed through by Samantha Hunt the previous Friday afternoon. What actually happened to it would prove to be the subject of some of the most bizarre and contradictory evidence that the subsequent inquiry into Victoria's death would hear. The referral form was in fact not cited by anybody in the Child Protection Department until some three weeks after it had been faxed over to them. At this point, it was picked up by a member of the team who started to process it. The inquiry would later detail a catalogue of cover-up stories relating to that initial referral form. Individuals blamed each other as to why it had not been processed in a timely manner or taken seriously, and it was evident that confusion reigned in Brent Child Protection offices. The contradictory stories that presented themselves in the subsequent inquiry painted the picture of a child protection office in chaos and disarray. Faxes and files went missing regularly, proper paper records were scarce, social workers were overworked and poorly supported and no robust processes were in place to check referrals had been received and acted upon. I think it's quite possible that the fax, don't forget it was sent through late on a Friday afternoon, had been buried in a pile of other unread faxes that had come flying out of the fax machine that afternoon which had then all been sidelined until the Monday. And then I guess Monday came and went in a frenzy of deadlines and more work and Tuesday followed probably in a similar fashion and so on and so on. And that crucial piece of paper faxed through by Samantha Hunt was lost in a pile for three odd weeks until someone had chance to look at it. And I I just kind of wanted to say at this point, you know, I think we've all worked in offices like this that are just a complete fucking mess. I know I have, but the difference for me is if some paperwork was lost, it didn't mean that a child was potentially going to die off the back of that. So, you know, there's no excuses in in this scenario to have such a, a chaotic office, is there? No, and do you know, that is so my experience. So one of the, um, jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the recommendations that came in once the inquiry had concluded around around all of the missed opportunities with 
you know, actually trying to save Victoria. One of the, you know, a lot of it was just about really basic systems that would have made a massive difference. So one of the things that came in as a recommendation was once you fax over a child protection referral, um, if you're worried about a young, uh, a young person and you end up faxing through a referral, you had to follow that up with a phone call to ensure that they had got your fax. And I remember in the early days, quite often having to send through a child protection referral and then phoning up the department and saying, you know, I've just faxed over this child protection referral. This is the name of the child, date of birth, etc. And a couple of occasions, I remember even, you know, four or five years after the tragic loss of Victoria, um, still faxes would be going missing. And that was uh, Birmingham based where I worked. So I don't think, although they get a really bad press, um, some of the social services departments in London, I think that was pretty much common practice throughout these sorts of busy offices up and down the country, really. And also that, you know, to a large extent, they were firefighting. They were getting loads of referrals through. They're understaffed. The staff aren't supported. There's there's potentially not a kind of office manager type person to put these processes in place and make sure the staff adhere to them. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's easy to blame these social services departments. But as you said, it, you know, it could have been any social services department up and down the country. What I also find really peculiar is the use of faxes, because I was chatting to someone the other day about this. You'd never fax anything now with really sensitive information on because you could misdial easily and that information goes to some random person uh, who then is privy to all of that information. So, you know, there were emails around this time and I just don't understand why they didn't have a more secure method of... um transferring that data from one department to another it's just weird isn't it totally weird and I remember I think you know the the number one rule that we always had was to put um, remember I mean half of your listeners are probably too young to remember faxes but yeah, I'm showing my age now. But one of the golden rules, and, and this was about the highest level of security you could get, was that the top page had to say private and confidential written across it so that anybody That's who picked it. And that, and that was yeah. about as, as um, secure as it got, really. It changed fair, fairly quickly afterwards and we reverted to emails and so forth. But it, not that long ago, and we were still faxing things like that across. It's crazy when you think about it now. Yeah, that was in the new millennium we were doing that. It's weird. Yeah. So so it was a chaotic office and it would appear that Esther Acker's gallant efforts to try and raise the alarm were sadly lost in the midst of this chaos. When the referral was eventually seen, it was chalked up as a low-level concern and not properly investigated. The initial referral got mixed up with the follow-up call that Esther had made to check on its progress and it was viewed as a housing issue then um, and therefore someone else's problem. So this was a missed opportunity in the protection and safeguarding of Victoria, one of the first missed opportunities. Although I would argue that there were missed opportunities potentially in Paris, but certainly when Victoria came into our country at border control, for example. In the meantime, oblivious to all of this, Marie-Therese's life was moving at quite a pace. She'd picked up some work, got Victoria in with a local, unregistered childminder, and met a toy boy named Carl Manning, who was 20 years her junior. And I noticed at this point you'd put an exclamation mark after that, which I thought was quite judgmental. Just thought I'd call oh, you out on that. 
Thanks for that. Yeah, but, you know, I just think at the end of the day, an exclamation mark is way lower level than what you'd have put. You'd have put something about her being a dirty bitch loving cock or something like that. Oh, my God. You can't say that. Jesus. Um, yeah, maybe. But you would have said that. You totally would have said that. I would have said something bad. Yeah. Um, but I thought for once I can have a go at someone else rather than someone having a go at me. So Carl Manning was 26 and he was a bus driver. He has subsequently been described as a bit of a loner, and I think I read that this was his first proper relationship. Marie-Therese struck up a conversation with him on the bus one day. She liked what she saw, and they exchanged numbers. After four short weeks, she saw an opportunity to get out of the temporary accommodation that she was in and to move in with Carl, who lived in a small flat. It was a one-bedroomed flat in Somerset Gardens in Tottenham. Carl became quite obsessed with Marie-Therese in the weeks and months that followed, but there was a problem for him, Victoria. He made it quite clear that he did not want a child interrupting his picture of romantic bliss. Now, there's evidence to suggest that the level of abuse Victoria received at the hands of Marie-Therese increased dramatically once Carl came into their lives. And I don't want to go into too much detail as it truly is the stuff of nightmares, but it is evident that Victoria was regularly beaten with a belt buckle, with bicycle chains, and she also had cigarettes put out on her and she was scolded with boiling water. She wet herself often, most likely as a direct result of the trauma that she was experiencing. And eventually, in the last few months of her life, Carl threw out her sofa bed and made her sleep in the bath in a bin bag. And I think she was tied, tied up somehow so that she couldn't move. And she would be tied up uh, for, for periods in excess of 24 hours as well. So, I mean, isn't that just, you know, I'm sure you've heard of awful abuse in, in your work, but it's not it's not something i hear about very often and it's just i can't imagine the life that victoria was living in in the final months before she died it's just absolutely harrowing and and yes i've seen things that are you know awful and any kind of child abuse is just horrendous but particularly her story and what she experienced and the fact that she's described continually by everybody who came into contact with her as a smiley and pleasant and polite little girl, how she managed to, you know, I like to think that even though it was horrendous what she experienced, they didn't quite kill her spirit. She'd still got this ability Mm. to smile and she'd still got this ability to almost hope for better times, I think. So... But absolutely what she experienced is amongst the the hardest um and, and you're already touching on the, the surface of some of the some of the torturous acts that were sort of perpetuated on her and it's just mm. it's just is horrendous. Yeah. So unlike in Paris, Victoria was never registered for school in London and she spent a lot of time at the home of her childminder, Priscilla Cameron. And it's thought that this is one place that Victoria got some respite from the abuse that she endured at home and she was cared for and accepted within the Cameron family. They were concerned about Victoria though. They noticed that Marie-Therese would often shout at her in French and they could see that she was visibly scared of her. They also noticed marks and injuries on her. And when they questioned Marie-Therese about these injuries, she would say that Victoria had inflicted them herself when she'd been playing with razor blades. And at this point, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, if you're gonna 
um, abuse your child and inflict visible injuries upon them, then you need to come up with a better excuse than I'm allowing her to play with razor blades because that in itself is massively concerning, isn't it? Well, it's ridiculous. It's just a ridiculous answer to, you know, somebody inquiring as to why your child has got these marks on them to say that she's playing with razor blades. It's like it's not even a proper cover-up because even if abuse no. wasn't going on, you're letting an eight-year-old, nine-year-old play with razor blades, which is ridiculous yeah. in itself. To me, it almost shows the audacity of her because it, she almost just doesn't give a shit. She's just like, I'm getting away with this. I felt like there's there's almost a growing arrogance in her of like, I'm doing what I want to do and I don't even have to cover my tracks that much sort of thing. She doesn't even try to put any sort of credible story or reason as to what these marks were caused by. Mm. I think I picked up on that throughout the the, the script. Um, she she kind of becomes more and more arrogant, more lazy, and um, yeah, she's she's getting away with this. So I suppose that uh, makes her think that I don't need to put as much effort into to covering these things up. So, but I definitely got that vibe, and I also think perhaps it is a lack of intellect on on her part. Yeah, definitely. She has not got you know the brain cells to dream up anything else. No, but I'm not, I'm really not, I don't want to stick, stick up for her at all, but she probably had no education if she was brought up in the Ivory Coast in the 60s or 70s. It's unlikely that she would have had any kind of decent education, isn't it? So I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, she she probably was uneducated to a large extent and, and all of the way that she presented herself to the Columbia family was just a facade, really. She, she's a complete fake, but educated or not educated, you know, she clearly lacked any sort of common sense and even if you're uneducated you know you still know right from wrong and it's Mm. you know she had absolutely lost that capacity completely I mean her actions are psychopathic in my opinion so you know um and and if you're somebody of that sort of mindset then your ability to to understand what would be appropriate and not appropriate is clearly missing and she makes no attempt to cover that up really no One evening, about a month after Esther had first tried to raise the alarm with Brent child protection, Marie-Therese turned up at Priscilla Cameron's home with Victoria in tow and a bag of her belongings. She told Priscilla that her new boyfriend don't want her, so she would like to leave Victoria with the Camerons indefinitely. Priscilla, in disbelief at the audacity of Marie-Therese and the complete disregard shown towards Victoria on her part, stated clearly that as it was now gone 11 o'clock at night, that yes, she'll look after her that night, but of course not indefinitely. In shock and aghast at what had just happened, Priscilla took Victoria inside to the house, but when she removed her hat, she noticed marks on her head indicating that she'd been beaten and burned, and she also saw infected cuts on Victoria's fingers. She also noticed a loose piece of skin hanging from Victoria's right eyelid. And that was um, an additional detail that I just wanted to put in that that I know you'd, you'd not initially put in. And I wanted to put it in and I think I wanted to put that in because it's a really obvious injury on this child's face. It's an awful injury, a loose piece of skin hanging from her right eyelid. And Marie-Therese had, had deemed it you know, inconsequential. It doesn't matter that it's there, that people will see it, that people will ask questions because I don't give a damn and I'm untouchable. I can get away with whatever I want. So I think that really reinforces the points that we've just made. 
And it's also not mentioned at this point. I think you you alluded to it earlier, but I'm guessing Victoria would have been showing signs of malnutrition at this point. She'd have been severely underweight, wouldn't she? Yeah, I mean, all the way through, pretty much everybody who came into contact with her did describe her as being a small child for her age. And while she might have been sort of naturally small, there there definitely is sort of indicators that she was being starved, uh, deprived of food, all of those sorts of things from very early on. So I do think that when um, she went to stay with the Cameron family, they did comment quite frequently about how skinny she kind of appeared to be and and hungry she was and things of that nature. But Marie Therese would have probably just passed that off if ever they'd said to her, she'd have just been like, oh, she's always hungry or she's just naturally skinny. Yeah, and don't you think, you know, I've come across these people in, in my life before who tell you something that's just unbelievable or they give you a ridiculous answer to a question, but they give it with such authority and such sort of fake sincerity and they command such sort of I don't know um they're almost intimidating with the way that they respond that even though in the cold light of day you look at what they've said to you and you think that's ridiculous you believe it at the time because they're saying it with such concrete assurance almost and and I've come across people like that before that have got away with things because just the way they've delivered the answer has almost led the other person to feel that they can't challenge it. Mm. Yeah we've come across that loads in in different cases that we've covered with perpetrators that are doing these crazy things and just getting away with it and people are involved or seeing what they've done and yeah, the authority that they carry just enables them to, to continue. Um, so as I said, uh, Marie Therese has turned up to Priscilla's home with Victoria, asking if she'll take her in indefinitely. Uh, Priscilla has said no, but I will take her in tonight. And when, when Victoria's come into the house, Priscilla has seen the state that she's in and she's had enough at this point. So she then decided to take Victoria to the central Middlesex hospital that very night. And it's here that we see yet another missed opportunity to protect this little girl following another gallant attempt to get help. A doctor at the hospital spent two hours examining Victoria in the early hours of that morning and noted many marks and scars that looked like non-accidental injuries. Correct procedures were followed in the first instance and the child protection teams were notified of the possibility of evidence of abuse. An emergency order was granted to put Victoria under police protection and for her to stay in hospital. A referral was made again to Brent Child Protection Unit, this time with a full body map showing the various injuries seen on Victoria. And at last it seemed as though someone was finally doing something. The police had taken action and the Brent Child Protection Unit had been sent an even more detailed referral than the one that Samantha Hunt had faxed through after that call from Esther. Surely this would be enough to initiate a child protection investigation. Well, it should have been, had it not been for the events of the next morning, when a senior consultant saw Victoria and re-diagnosed her with scabies, citing that the marks were as a result of her scratching herself. Now, in a moment of mind-bending frustration, the police protection order was lifted, and to add insult to injury, no one at Brent Child Protection Unit noticed there was a clear link between this referral and the referral made following the anonymous call from Esther. 
back in June, which I think was only a few weeks prior to this visit to the hospital. So it's not like months has passed at this point. If someone had linked the two referrals on the system and noticed that they referenced the same child, then the level of seriousness would have increased and the case may not have so easily found itself back to where it seemed destined to belong on that fucking non-urgent pile. Victoria was discharged back to Marie-Therese after one night in hospital and the Brent Child Protection Unit de-escalated the case in light of the doctor's new diagnosis. Unbelievably, as Victoria was placed on and off a protection order in less than 24 hours, not a single police officer or social worker involved in the case visited the hospital or saw or spoke to Victoria themselves. How could a decision be made as to whether a child needed safeguarding or was being abused or at risk if the powers that be, the trained professionals in all things child protection and child abuse, never actually physically saw the child or looked at the injuries for themselves or simply asked Victoria if everything was okay? And I thought this this is really interesting because Victoria was safe in that hospital. Marie-Therese wasn't there. She probably didn't know that Victoria was in hospital for that kind of 24 hours. Uh, social workers would have would have gone along had they visited Victoria. They would have asked her the questions in the right way, uh, in, a, in a proper way. There'd have probably been an interpreter and it it's possible that Victoria would have said, actually, I'm really not happy at home and my auntie or mom as she's masquerading is is abusing me. But of course, that just wasn't done. Following this chaotic state of affairs, there was a brief telephone call between a social worker and Marie-Therese, where she was informed that there had been sufficient concern to place Victoria under a protection order. However, that protection order had since been rescinded, given the second doctor's diagnosis. Marie-Therese, of course, stuck to her story that Victoria was harming herself, but this had been a close call, and so she vowed never to take her back to Priscilla Cameron, the childminder who had taken her to hospital. And I think when they told her, when the social worker told Marie-Therese that uh, they had had concerns and they, they had taken some action and they'd since rescinded that, it was it would have sounded alarm bells to Marie-Therese for probably the first time that you've got an authoritative figure telling you that we had concerns over the welfare of a child in your care. So I think this this would have almost enabled Marie-Therese to not be on the back foot and to be one step ahead of the authorities. Yeah, I do think that this move by the... I think it was actually Priscilla's daughter who physically took her to the hospital, but she was very much accepted, as you said, by that entire family. So although it was Priscilla who was the, the childminder, the whole family embraced her really as as a secondary member of the family in a way and you really get the sense that they they were growing to love her and really care about her and I do think that them actually taking that quite brave action actually it's quite brave to bundle a child up it's very very easy to go it's not really my business I might be wrong about this perhaps I'm reading too much into this I don't really want to get involved in this. All of that is very, very easy to dismiss, even when you describe the way that she looked and that piece of skin hanging over her eye and all of those sorts of things. 
many people may have talked themselves out of what could be seen as quite drastic action behind what they thought was her mom's back taking her to the hospital and sharing their concerns so for me the Cameron family are another one of those people that were very close to being heroes in this situation they acted and they acted valiantly and they acted with bravery and those sorts of things and I do agree I think that probably very much wobbled um, Marita Ray's I think she probably sat there and thought you know people are starting to notice and people are starting to take action and of course she took her own counteraction and just had nothing to ever to do with that family again that Cameron family never saw Victoria again from that day mm. so she took her own drastic action as a result and I think she was so desperate to get rid of Victoria and Manning was so desperate for Victoria to be out of the picture. It would have taken a lot for her to relinquish that that child-minding service that she'd sourced. And I think she was definitely wobbled and, and had no choice really in her mind but to cut all ties with them. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think it w- it would have been an absolute last resort because... Uh, we know that Victoria spent a lot of time round at the Cameron household. It wasn't just, uh, you know, a couple of hours a day. She spent a lot of time there. And, um, yeah, for Marie Therese to, uh, relinquish that and, and clearly have Victoria in her quote unquote care would have, um, further aggravated Carl Manning. So. And sometimes, you know, I don't think that we, th- we ever think about that family and, and all the press that's associated with Victoria Columbia and, you know, I like to think most people have heard of the name, even though that wasn't my experience the other week when I delivered some training. But, you know, it's no secret necessarily what happened to her. And I often think about that family and how hard they tried to get somebody to notice and how traumatic that must have been in the end that they tried everything to get people in charge, if you like, to to notice. And, and they just scratched it up to scabies and, and walked away. The only other thing I wanted to kind of say around this um, before we we talk about another hospital visit that's coming right up, uh, I think you can almost take some sort of solace in the fact that we kind of talked a little bit about it a a few minutes ago, but uh, that Victoria got to spend time with this family, with the Cameron family, and she she was around there a lot, and that was a respite from the abuse that she was enduring at home at that one-bedroom flat belonging to Carl Manning. Um, so I, I think it, that's the only thing you can really take from this. There are a lot of people that, that are would-be heroes that did the right thing. Um, the action or the consequence of, of their actions didn't come to any good, but that was nothing to do with them. But I think that's one thing I can take from this is that Victoria would have had many hours of joy at the Camerons, although that would have been tinged with dread as the clock ticked by and she knew that Marie-Therese was coming to collect her. But there, there would have been love and joy and fun in that house yeah, she had every a, day, I'm sure. She had a taste of a family again, didn't she, for, for that brief period of time. And I think she was very close, particularly to um, the, the son in the family. She struck up quite a special relationship with him and they spent a lot of time together. And, and like you say, the, you have to take the very small mercies when you talk about Victoria's time in the UK particularly and, and one of the small mercies was that brief period that she experienced some respite from the torture that she ha- she was getting at the hands of Manning and um, Marie Therese at that time so you know full credit to the Cameron family. Yeah 
So just a week later, a week after this first hospital admission, Marie-Therese took Victoria back to hospital, but this time she went to the North Middlesex Hospital. She had quite serious scolds on her head, which Marie-Therese explained away by saying that Victoria had placed her own head under the hot tap in order to alleviate the itching from the scabies. And, I mean, that could be true, because this is an eight-year-old girl. If she did have scabies, then she wouldn't really understand how to alleviate that pain and itching and discomfort. And she was probably in such a bad way that she would have resorted to such drastic action as to put her own head under a really hot tap. But either way, Victoria wasn't getting the treatment she needed for that condition if she did have scabies, which is abuse in itself, isn't it? Well, she'd still, you know, even if that was the the case and the only thing that was going on, then you would have to be thinking about neglect, um, inability to meet basic needs, all of those sorts of things. And I, I hear what you're saying about a child child you know not necessarily being able to manage what I would only imagine to be like really intense itching and stuff like that but most children would even if they did resort to that which I think even by that sort of age they would know not to put their own head under the hot tap but even if they did do that the second it started to hurt they would pull their head away really quickly probably quickly enough for it not to scold it would be seconds wouldn't it for it to have caused Mm. the injuries which were then seen on Victoria it had to have been exposed to that hot water for a period of time to to scold in that in that way and you cannot do that to yourself no your instincts would pull you back from it so we're going to talk uh, about this hospital admission in more detail but before we do that let's hear from the second and last sponsor of today's episode okay so we left the story with victoria's second admission to hospital It was this admission on the 24th of July in 1999 that prompted yet another referral to a child protection team, this time in Haringey. And here we go again, another example of a disastrous handling of a child protection concern. On this occasion, the doctor, a Dr Forley, rang Haringey's out-of-hour social services team and apparently described treating a young patient with facial burns about whom she had concerns. The social worker had a totally different story and said that her recollection of that phone call was that the doctor had said she believed the injuries were accidental and she was going to speak to the hospital social worker about any further action that might be needed. As a result, the social worker filed the phone call in that non-urgent pile. She made a note that it was going to be looked into by the hospital social worker and consequently she never ran any checks to see if there were any existing concerns on the system about this child. Yet another failed attempt to join up the dots relating to previous referrals and concerns. Victoria was bathed in the hospital the next day and the nurses noticed many older scars and marks on her body, some of which showed clear indentations that looked like they'd been made by a belt buckle. And obviously, you know, we talked about not wanting to be too graphic about the injuries, but we kind of have to go there to a certain extent. And I just wanted to kind of say at this point, for a belt buckle to have left an indentation that has then become a scar that can then be clearly... Um, attributed to a belt buckle so it still looks like the indentation of a belt buckle a long time after that injury has been been inflicted I'm just thinking at this point the the force with which they must have thrashed Victoria 
it's just you know this wasn't just hitting her this was horrific it's on a scale that you can't even imagine so hospital staff reported their findings internally and the hospital social worker sprung into action asking the relevant people for further information before liaising with Haringey again to give them this new information This sparked a flurry of activity within Haringey and they notified the local police child protection unit. Finally, a strategy meeting was called to discuss the case in detail and to decide on a course of action, including whether to initiate a full investigation. The strategy meeting took place on the 28th of July with Victoria still in hospital, where she was fast becoming a firm favourite amongst the nurses. Victoria was befriended by a French-speaking nurse who would play with her and take her to see the newborn babies on the maternity ward, which really fascinated Victoria. By all accounts, Victoria was smiley and playful when she was in hospital, but that would all change when Marie-Therese turned up to visit, although that was rare. On one occasion, a nurse noted that Marie-Therese was seemingly telling Victoria off in French when the little girl became so frightened that she wet herself. The concerns were palpable amongst some of the nursing staff, and yet not one single member of the hospital team looking after Victoria was in attendance at the strategy meeting to clearly convey any medical evidence or observations. However, it was decided at the meeting that there were sufficient concerns about Victoria, sufficient enough to allocate a social worker, and 18 actions were listed to be completed by that social worker. From what I can see, these really were quite detailed and included background checks in France, obtaining full details from the hospital about the injuries Victoria sustained, conducting interviews with Marie-Therese in the presence of an interpreter, checking what was going on regarding schooling for Victoria, she still hadn't been registered at school, and just, well, generally investigating the injuries in a bit more detail. Shockingly, there is very little evidence that any of these actions were ever carried out in any degree of detail. A full 13 days after Victoria was admitted to hospital, an allocated social worker, Lisa Arthurwery, was accompanied by a police officer, PC Jones, on a visit to finally go and speak to Victoria. Lisa had only been a social worker for 18 months and she'd never conducted a full investigation by herself before and she didn't get much supervision or support either. This hospital visit lasted less than 30 minutes, no interpreter was present, remember Victoria had only been in England a few short months and her grasp of English was not great at this point, and by all accounts Victoria just verified the account Marie-Therese had given about how she'd sustained these burn injuries. At no point did either professional ask about any other marks or injuries. PC Jones and Lisa were also instructed to complete a home visit. This got abandoned, however, when PC Jones decided that the risk of catching scabies from the home was too high for her, and so instead they invited Marie-Therese into the social services offices for an interview. When she stuck to the story about Victoria inflicting the injuries on herself to alleviate the itching from the scabies, that seemed to be criminal case closed for them. In their minds, it was most likely an accident. Yeah, the family needed a bit of social support with housing and such like, but Victoria was free to go home with Marie-Therese. Now, I just wanted to discuss briefly this house visit or lack of house visit. Um, 
it's easy for me perhaps to kind of say, well, was PC Jones being uh, stupid, basically? And should she have just gone to the house, scabies or no scabies? How does it work? Would would there have to be a risk assessment? Would there be a lot of red tape? Or, you know, would you actively avoid a house that, that is infected with scabies? Is that normal? Well, it's a difficult one, I think. And I think one of the things that came out of the inquiry was wanting to move away from individual blame. So, yes, um, this this PC had an issue about going around with the, the potential presence of scabies being in, in the home. And that's her personal preference. What was lacking here was any organisational guidance around what the protocols were in situations like this. If there were robust protocols, she would have no, she would have not been left to make that decision herself. And so when we're thinking about should she have gone round, should she not have gone round? And that's something we can all have an opinion on, definitely. But the point is that there was no supervision to help make that judgment call. There were no alternatives. There was no standardised protocol around that sort of thing. So when you leave these decisions to individuals, that's when you can get into this sort of messy situations because we all have different judgments about the right and wrong thing to do. In my experience, I do think it was uh, a complete error, obviously, not going around and home visiting. There are many, many ways that you can conduct a home visit that might have meant that you knocked on the door and you stayed the other side of that door, but you got clear enough view of what was going on inside of that home. I've done many, many home visits where parents won't let you in for whatever reason, but just by knocking on that front door and them opening up the front door and engaging in a conversation with you on the doorstep, you get a sense of what that home is like. Uh, And that might sort of build your concern level. It might alleviate some of those concerns, but to not even make the attempt to go and knock on the door is poor, I think. And, And the bigger issue is that nobody saw that Nobody saw that potential failing, nobody picked up on that, nobody challenged that, nobody supervised the decision making around that. So these two people were left with a situation that they felt they didn't want to go and engage with and were able to not engage with that. But having said all of that, you know, I've sat in um, places with shitty nappies that I've had to dodge that have been on the on the kind of couch next to me I've been in rat infested homes where rats are running around the baby's cot I've been in some absolute I mean you would freak out because you're a tidy freak you know um particularly going back to that time just after that time I was very much frontline and some of the I remember going into a flat once where we got concerns about the children and I did a little bit of a whiz around the flat and had a look in the rooms Uh, we would often ask to do that and I went into the one bedroom and it was just horrendous I can't even begin to describe to you it was about two feet high in just crap to the point where I sort of went oh my god as I walked in and as I said that there was all this sort of commotion from the bed and underneath this pile of absolute crap the dad was asleep in the bed and I hadn't even seen him because it was just full of absolute shite basically so and you would think that a social worker and I know she was a bit wet behind the ears and a PC would be used to going into homes like that and I and I know Scabies is sort of a notifiable um, infectious, I don't know if they class it as a disease or, or what it is really, but even so, I think more attempt could have been made. 
Yeah, I, I don't want to, I really don't want to blame PC Jones and, um, the social worker, Lisa Arthur Worry in, in this regard. I think, you know, they probably did what, what was in accordance with procedures or made that judgment call. And, uh, yeah, any of us could have made that, that judgment call. And hindsight, of course, we know that it was the wrong thing to do, but we, we could have all done that, I think. So yet again, this was another instance where the dots weren't joined and the two separate hospital admissions were not fully linked or investigated. Reports from the initial hospital admission were apparently difficult to read and decipher and no attempt was made by the social worker to find out what they actually said. Victoria wasn't given enough opportunity to disclose anything that was going on and information got lost between departments, yet another failed opportunity. Over the next few months, Lisa Arthur Worry visited Marie Therese's flat on a couple of occasions and always found it to be in good order, although she did later acknowledge that she always booked in her visits in advance and um, Marie Therese would know that she was coming, so therefore she would have had time to make the flat presentable. Lisa focused on the housing issue and supported Marie Therese with a full housing application. However, on one of her last visits to the flat, she went there to inform her that her application had been unsuccessful because their current accommodation was deemed adequate in light of the fact that no one in the household had a disability or was at risk of significant harm. In response to this, and in another twist in this harrowing story, a few days later, at the beginning of November, Marie-Therese turned up at the social services offices with her boy toy, Carl Manning, and Victoria in tow, claiming that Carl had been sexually abusing Victoria, thus ensuring Victoria was seen as a child who was at risk now. And it was just a really bizarre situation, because Marie-Therese has brought along the alleged perpetrator of the sexual abuse against her daughter in order to make this complaint and that behaviour alone should have raised some serious suspicions. Uh, Lisa Arthur Worry was in the office at the time and observed Marie-Therese chatting normally with Carl whilst waiting to be seen which again should have further cast doubts. Lisa went over to Marie-Therese and instructed Carl to leave, which is the right thing to do based on the allegations. However, as he left, he became distressed and said repeatedly, I have not done what she says I've done. Marie-Therese went on to detail three separate occasions where Carl had allegedly sexually abused Victoria. So at the beginning of the episode, when I said that there were some descriptions of child sexual abuse, this is where it is. One occasion involved the digital penetration of Victoria while Carl forced her to touch his penis. These were very serious allegations and Lisa Arthur Worry made that clear to Marie-Therese. Lisa then went and spoke to Victoria and was surprised when the child launched into a graphic description of the sexual abuse supposedly inflicted on her which was consistent with what Marie-Therese had said. Lisa later said that she felt as though Victoria had been coached in what to say. Nonetheless, to be fair to Lisa, she informed the Police Child Protection Unit, she booked a strategy meeting again and told Marie-Therese that whilst an investigation was happening, there was no way that they could stay with Carl Manning. It was agreed that Marie-Therese and Victoria would stay with some friends and while still in the office, Marie-Therese called some friends to arrange this and Lisa also spoke with them to explain the situation. But once they'd left the office, Marie-Therese and Victoria pretty much went straight back to living with Carl. 
The very next day, Marie-Therese came back into the office with Victoria and retracted those allegations, saying that Victoria had made them up and Carl was innocent and therefore didn't need to be arrested. The social worker she spoke to explained that things didn't work like that. It would still need to be investigated and the strategy meeting would go ahead as planned. She reiterated that Marie-Therese and Victoria must remain at the friend's house and not go back to Carl's flat. So two days later, the strategy meeting happened. 15 action points were set at that meeting, including completing a full assessment, background checks with the French authorities, and many others that were basically a carbon copy of those action points set in the previous strategy meeting that had never got completed. A loose deadline was set for mid-December, and from the looks of what was recorded, pretty much only one action in that time frame was completed, and that was done to an unsatisfactory standard. Lisa Arthur Worry did put a request in for a background check with the French authorities, but it returned a no-trace finding. However, under closer inspection after the event, it was evident that the check had been submitted with the wrong spelling of the family name, and it wasn't just like one letter out, it was spelt wholly wrong. During the next six weeks, contact was lost with Marie-Therese and Victoria. They were not seen by Lisa Arthur Worry. Marie-Therese didn't answer her phone and alleged home visits that took place or didn't take place produced no sightings. Eventually in December, Lisa telephoned the friends that Marie-Therese and Victoria should have been staying with following the sexual abuse allegations, but these friends made it clear that they had never stayed with them, not even for one night. A number of visits were made by Lisa between mid-December and early January to Carl Manning's flat, but to no avail. And very sadly, tragically, it's now believed that Victoria may well have been there, lying cold, alone, battered and starved, in the bathroom, probably in the bath, just a few feet from the closed and unanswered front door that Lisa Arthur Worry stood on the other side of. Which is just heartbreaking, isn't it, to think how close she, she would have been to saving her. Just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. But not not necessarily Lisa's fault. She was kind of doing, at this point, what, what allegedly she should have been doing. We, we don't have evidence for these visits, whether they were made or not. She said they were. So if they were made, she's gone round, she's knocked on the door, rung the doorbell, there's been no answer. What else is she going to do? She's got no other real concerns at this point that Victoria's in any kind of danger. So again, with hindsight, with thinking that Victoria was just a few feet away, probably, lay in the bath, dying. Yeah, of course, it would be easy to say that Lisa should have taken more action. But for me, I, I think it's so easy to blame the wrong people in this in this case. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, totally. It just backs up my point before, really. And and I think the tragedy there, Lisa, there is a lot of bad practice on her behalf, an awful lot of bad practice. But if she was appropriately supervised by a manager in the way that frontline child protection social workers are more so these days, then other questions would have been asked. So uh, a manager, a competent manager, may have said things like, tell me a bit more about Victoria or Anna, as she was known. And Lisa would have really struggled to answer that because her her access, her uh, dialogue with Victoria was so limited. And a competent manager would have picked up on that and said, you know, you really need to hear the child's voice in this. Somebody needs to have a conversation with her. And that might have prompted her to do that. If she had made those visits, and there's a lot of scepticism around how many visits were actually made, because as you said, there weren't any 
clear documentation of visits, but Lisa did talk about visiting a number of occasions. If she did make those visits and she didn't get access into the property, again, if she was being appropriately supervised, a manager might have said... So you don't know what the inside of the flat's like. Do we know anything about this guy that uh, mom is living with? And she would have just fallen over her own lack of knowledge. And a competent manager may have said to her, try this, try this. I want you to go back and try this. I want you to try it a different time to home visit. They would have sort of provided that guidance and support that was just so lacking for her. So yes, there was some awful practice on Lisa's part. And there was, you know, she was one of the people that was responsible for a number of the failings of saving Victoria. But equally, she just strikes me as being a a, a green social worker with no support, no guidance, no supervision, overworked, winging it almost. And, and very, very sadly, Victoria was a casualty of that. Mm. And I think you're right. A supervisor could have even said, you know what, you've been in the role 18 months. We've not had the opportunity to do as much training with you or provide enough supervision or support. And and this is potentially a bit more of a complex case. So I want to take it off your desk and pass it to one of your experienced colleagues and we'll we'll be able to support you with something less uh, complex or with less kind of gaps to it. Uh, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I think with the right supervision, it, it could have come out in the wash, couldn't it? One last attempt to track down the family was made on the 10th of January, with Lisa contacting a local school to see if Victoria had ever been registered there. Of course, she hadn't been, and Victoria was surmised at this point to have gone back to France with Marie Therese, and it was instructed for the case to be closed. Which is shocking, isn't it? This is bad. I mean, to just kind of go, well, we can't locate her, so let's just presume that she's gone back to France. She's not registered at a school, but she wasn't registered anyway, so that tells us jack shit. So let's just presume that she's gone back to France, and that means we can close this case. It's a one less case to look after. And I think that is the absolute point. They, they were drowning in referrals. They hadn't got a, a full complement of staff team. They were relying on agency staff. They were absolutely drowning in cases they couldn't cope. And if this was a way of closing one down, then I think they took any opportunity they could. Uh, it wasn't causing them any problem. There were no more phone calls being made. Nobody was raising any concerns. It all went quiet. Can't trap them down. Well, we can't just keep going back to an empty flat. We've, you know, I can tick a box to say that I have checked with the local schools to see if she was registered and, and that's drawn a blank. What else can I do? Let's close it. And I think there was just that... Like you say, all the way through, she'd been put on that non-urgent pile and the minute there was a chance to close it. And it's such a shame because they came so close. They got strategy meetings. It was starting to be taken a bit more seriously. There were some clear actions that were coming out of those strategy meetings and it just all seemed to fall through any gap that it could find. It was almost just destined to fail at every kind of avenue that that was kind of gone down, whether it was a visit to the hospital and a a doctor diagnosing correctly that these were non-accidental injuries, but then another doctor comes in and says it's as a result of scabies. It's like, yeah, it was just doomed, really. Um, So during this time, so um, this would be January 2000, uh, it was known that Marie-Therese had started to frequent some controversial churches in the area that believed in demonic possession of children and exorcism. Marie-Therese had sought prayer and help for Victoria as she claimed the constant bedwetting was indicative of her being possessed. 
There is evidence to suggest that by the 19th of February in the year 2000, Victoria was very ill. On this day, which was a Saturday, Marie Therese took her to the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, housed in the old Rainbow Theatre on the Seven Sisters Road. As they entered the 3pm service, they appeared to be shouting at each other. Marie Therese and Victoria were disturbing the service, so the assistant to the pastor, Ms Hartley Martin, took Victoria downstairs to the crash. Here she noticed Victoria was shivering, and when she asked her if she was cold, Victoria replied that she wasn't cold, she was hungry. Ms Hartley Martin gave her some biscuits, and Victoria hid them in her pocket when Marie Therese came down to collect her. Which is another massive red flag, you know, the fact that this child is saying, no, I'm not cold, I'm physically shivering because I'm being fucking starved. And she's also having to conceal food about her person so that it doesn't get confiscated from her. You know, that that's another massive red flag that, that nobody actually on this occasion did anything about. At the end of the service, Pastor Lima spoke to Marie Therese about the difficulties she said she'd been having with Victoria, particularly around her incontinence. He expressed the view that Victoria's problems were indeed most likely due to her possession by an evil spirit and he said that he would spend the week fasting on Victoria's behalf which is just complete fucking bollocks. Like what the fuck is that going to do to save her? Marie Therese was advised to bring Victoria back to church on the following Friday morning. According to Pastor Lima, Friday was the day on which prayers were said for deliverance from witchcraft, bad luck and everything bad or evil. The events of the next week unfold as follows. On the Sunday, Marie Therese and Victoria returned to the church where they were seen by a different pastor. Apparently, Victoria was quiet and well behaved during this visit, clearly starved and incoherent by this point would be my guess. On Wednesday, Marie-Therese phoned Pastor Lima in the evening and told him that Victoria's behaviour had improved and that she'd ceased to cover the flat in excrement. And I just wanted to talk about this actually at this point because I've not read the report, you've done all the research, but obviously we know that Victoria was bedwetting, that that was a real problem that she had, likely as a result of the trauma that she was experiencing. Were there instances where she had covered the flat in her own excrement? And the reason I'm asking that is because that can be quite indicative of, of something going on in a child's world that that's horrific can't it absolutely yeah i mean that would be a really worrying sign um if a child is doing that and and you have seen quite a lot of that and not always but quite often that is linked to sexual abuse or at least quite profound abuse and there can be other reasons as well can be sensory reasons why children do that and it may not be linked to abuse whatsoever i haven't read anything other than what Marie Therese says on this occasion around her smearing excrement over the house or the flat. haven't read that anywhere else, so I don't know if that is something that Marie Therese is just saying or something that was an occurrence. It doesn't ring right to me that it was a regular occurrence. It's not mentioned anywhere else. What is Mm. mentioned a lot is that she was very... It wasn't just... I think when we talk about bedwetting, people often think about somebody wetting the bed at night when they're when they're in bed obviously and I think for 
Victoria, it was more profound than that. So I think she was wetting herself a lot all of the time, not just at night time. She was pretty much incontinent and was wetting herself all of the time. So I know that was a big issue and that's mentioned quite a lot. That happened in the hospital. So it wasn't just, you know, when she was around Marie Therese. So there's other accounts of that, but certainly I haven't read anything where there are accounts of her smearing excrement. Mm. And I just find that a little bit, of a stretch to believe if she was experiencing such harrowing abuse and her demeanour was one often of ultimate compliance. When she went to the hospital, one of the reports was that I think it was a doctor observed this, what he described or she described as a master servant type relationship. I think Victoria pretty much stood to attention when Marie Therese walked in and that dynamic was set in concrete really by Marie Therese and often is by an abuser so I I feel like Victoria was just the compliant survive little girl trying to survive not wanting to do anything that might antagonize any more abuse that that's and that's my opinion but mm. you know I haven't read anything to the contrary of that yeah I, I only wanted to kind of bring it up because it was the first mention of it and I know that it can be indicative of sexual abuse in particular. So, yeah, I thought it was worthy of a conversation, but we, we're never going to know for definite. But like you say, you know, that's your opinion, uh, that that probably wasn't the case. On the Thursday, Marie-Therese phoned Merz Hartley Martin, the pastor's assistant, and told her that Victoria had been asleep for two days and had not eaten or drunk anything. By the evening of the same day, Marie-Therese was concerned enough to bring Victoria to the church to ask for help. Pastor Lima advised them to go to the hospital straight away and he ordered a minicab for them. The cab never made it to hospital, however. The driver was so worried for Victoria's welfare that he swung by an ambulance station and handed Victoria over to paramedics in order to get her straight to hospital and presumably treated on the way to hospital. In the early hours of Friday the 25th of February, Mr Robert Philpott, the out-of-hours social worker for Haringey Council, received a telephone call from Dr Pahari in the North Middlesex Hospital. He was ringing to tell social services that a child known as Anna Kuao had been brought to the hospital in an emergency. She was in a coma now with an abnormally low temperature, so low in fact that it was untraceable on a standard thermometer and she was breathing slowly with a slow heart rate too. He stated that on examining the girl, he noticed several old bruises, scars and ulcers to her wrists and ankles, and streaky bruises across her buttocks as if she'd been beaten. He said Anna's face and hands were swollen. It was also stated that the hospital suspected that Victoria, Anna, as she was known at the time, might have been poisoned, and that tests would be carried out either there or at St Mary's Hospital. It was thought that cigarette burns might have accounted for some of the old scars and the marks on Victoria's arms and legs suggested that she'd been bound tightly for prolonged periods of time, which we now know to be true. Victoria was unable to straighten her legs. She had ulcerations on both buttocks and lower legs and her feet were red and swollen. She was also extremely malnourished now. She had low blood protein and it was thought that she may have been starved, which again we now know to be the case. Despite the valiant efforts of the doctors at North Middlesex Hospital, Victoria's condition continued to deteriorate. In a desperate attempt to save her life, she was transferred to the paediatric intensive care unit at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. 
but it was all in vain. There, on the afternoon of the 25th of February in the year 2000, Victoria Climbier tragically died. Victoria experienced so many failings by the very people who held positions with the sole purpose of protecting vulnerable children like her. In the final sad twist in this story, Victoria's case was officially closed by Haringey Social Services on the 25th of February in 2000, the very day she died. But of course let's not forget that the true evil, the real blame, should be squared at the two deviants who inflicted the cruel and torturous acts on Victoria, Marie-Therese Coao and Carl Manning. At the post-mortem investigation, Dr Carey recorded no fewer than 128 separate injuries to Victoria's body, saying, there really is not anywhere that is spared, there is scarring all over her body. The following year, on the 12th of January 2001, Marie-Therese and Carl Manning were both convicted of Victoria's murder. At his trial, in an outrageous indicator of their depravity, Carl said that Marie-Therese would strike Victoria on a daily basis with a shoe, a coat hanger and a wooden cooking spoon and would strike her on her toes with a hammer. Victoria's blood was also found on Carl's football boots. He admitted that at times he would hit Victoria with a bicycle chain. Chillingly, he said, you could beat her and she just wouldn't cry. She could take the beatings and the pain like anything. So, I know this has been a really, really tough case, but there is a legacy um, from all of this. So, as we said, that, that we've alluded to this throughout, but there was a public inquiry in the aftermath of Victoria's murder. Uh, and the Laming Report, as it was known, was published on the 28th of January in 2003. And it found that the agencies involved in Victoria's care had failed to protect her and that on at least 12 separate occasions, workers involved in her case could have prevented her death. And the report was particularly scathing of senior managers involved in these organisations. On the day of the launch of the report, Victoria's mother sang her daughter's favourite song as a tribute. The 400-page report made 108 recommendations in child protection reform. It recommended setting up regional and local committees for children and families with members from all groups involved in child protection. Previously, each local authority managed their own child protection register, a list of children believed to be at risk, and no national register existed. This, combined with local authorities' tendency to suppress information about child abuse cases, led to the implementation of the Child Database. Two organisations to improve the care of children, the General Social Care Council and the Social Care Institute for Excellence, had already been set up by the time the report was published. Victoria's death was largely responsible for various changes in child protection in England, including the formation of Every Child Matters programme an initiative designed to improve the lives of children. Also the introduction of the Children Act 2004, an Act of Parliament that provides the legislative base for many of the reforms, the creation of Contact Point, a database designed to hold information on all children in England and Wales, although that's no longer in operation, and the creation of the post of Children's Commissioner, who heads the office of the Children's Commissioner, a national agency serving children and families. But it shouldn't have taken the murder of an eight-year-old child to see this kind of progress. 
So our thoughts and prayers are very much with Victoria and her family and, and loved ones. Uh, it's just such a horrific case. It's It really is. Now we've come to the end of it, I totally get why I just put it off and thought about it for a couple of years on and off and just couldn't bring myself to do it. So, so thank you for putting it together. Yeah, and I think if there's if there's any sort of anything to build on that legacy, really for the for for anybody, it is to remember those people like the Camerons and Esther Acker right at the beginning, who had concerns, and even though they weren't a professional necessarily, I mean Priscilla was a childminder, but she wasn't registered formally or anything of that nature. They raised those concerns. And I think it's important that all of us take on that mantle. And whether it is a neighbour, even a family member, somebody that we know, something that we see, if we are concerned, there are places that we can go and report those concerns. And even if we might think it's not really anything to do with me, I'm a little bit removed from that, anything of that nature, then maybe this story, as harrowing as it is, might stay in people's minds and just be enough to nudge them into Googling the child protection number for their local area or calling the NSPCC, which anybody can do by the way with any concern about a child and just reporting any of those concerns that that we've got really yeah thank you for that and i think yeah that that those are the heroes in in this story the people that did speak up that had concerns and didn't turn a blind eye the people that went to the authorities the um the absolute losers in this story are the authorities who failed to act properly on on those concerns that were presented to them so um thank you for for listening i hope you've managed to get to the end uh i'm off next week i've got one week off and then i'll be back i can't remember the dates but yeah no episode next wednesday but there will be the following wednesday yeah we'll uh, we'll see you again soon Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.